we'll share a little bit of background information. Like I said, this is a little, a little less formal than what you would get on a Sunday morning, uh, but maybe a little more formal than what we would do in a, a midweek Bible study where we go through verse by verse. Uh, I don't know who originally came up with the idea, but a lot of people have talked about the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and they have kind of described it as being the declaration of the kingdom. Jesus' declaration of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, just like our nation has a declaration of independence where we de declared independence from England, uh, and to, in a, kind of in a negative sense, you had people like Karl Marx with the Communist Manifesto. If you read those documents, you see the intent of the people that wrote them. Well, when John the Baptist was preaching, getting people ready, he was sent to prepare people for the kingdom of heaven. And if you know John's message, he said, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is coming. And then when Jesus shows up on the scene and John says, this is the one I was telling you about, Jesus' message was almost identical to John's. He says, repent, but the difference was, he says, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then Jesus was baptized and the Father spoke, the dove descended, the Spirit descended, and Jesus began his ministry following the temptation in the wilderness. And this is immediately after Jesus has been baptized. It's been after Jesus has been tempted. And he's going around, if you look in, at the end of chapter 4, he's going all over Galilee and he's teaching in the synagogues. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom. He is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited king that Israel was waiting for. And he's, he's teaching like no one had ever heard taught before. He's doing miracles and doing all these things. And the last thing you see in chapter 4 says, large crowds followed him all around. Everywhere he went, Jesus had crowds of people. And that sets the stage for what happens here in Matthew chapter 5 because what people are going to find out really, really quickly is Jesus is the Messiah, but he is not the Messiah they thought or expected. He's not the Messiah they wanted. They wanted a kingdom, but they wanted an earthly king that was going to come and go in and throw Rome out and reestablish the throne of David and take them back to the good old days. And so Jesus shows up and He says, the kingdom of heaven has now come near and these people are excited. They're ready to see God at work through the Messiah. And almost immediately as Jesus begins teaching, they realize all of a sudden that this is not necessarily the kingdom that they thought, but it is the kingdom of God. Beginning in verse 5, and I'm just going to read through uh, verse 12, and then we're going to go back, and we're just going to look at the first one. Like I said, the next several Sundays, we're going to go through the Beatitudes and take them one at a time. But just to set the stage, beginning in verse 1, it says, When he, Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. Then He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus sees these large crowds and he goes up and we don't really know exactly which mountain he is because if you look at a map around the Sea of Galilee, it's a mountainous area. 
So there's any number of mountains he could have gone up on. And these are not like huge mountains. This is not like the Sierra Nevadas. But he went up on the mountain and he sat down and these crowds came to him. And it was probably a practical reason. He could sit there and the people could sit down below him and he could carry his voice and they could hear him. So it was a practical reason he goes up there. Matthew says he sits down, and this is interesting, this, as I was studying this several years ago, the fact that Jesus sat down and these people gathered at his feet, and if you notice it says that his disciples came in closer. There were always large groups of people, and if you look through the Gospels, you have to see the different groups of people. There were the masses that followed him everywhere he went. They were just curious. They wanted to see what was going to happen. You had these groups that were called disciples that were following him all these places, and when I grew up, I thought of the disciples as being these 12 guys, but those are the apostles. Anyone who followed Jesus was a disciple, so that's a larger group. But they kind of get closer and closer, and they are sitting at his feet, and that's the way a Jewish rabbi would teach his followers. He would sit down, and those that wanted to really hear would sit at his feet and listen. So Jesus is sitting here with this large group of people as a Jewish rabbi, and he is explaining to them how the kingdom of God is going to look. And like I said, a lot of them are going to get shocked. They're going to get a big surprise because this isn't exactly what they thought. They're, they're wanting armies to go in and overthrow Caesar and establish a throne in Jerusalem just like David and King Solomon had. So here Jesus is, and He's going to start teaching almost immediately in this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This declaration of the kingdom describes a radically different kingdom than what those first century Jews were looking for. And if we are honest, it was much different than what we probably expect sometimes when we talk about the kingdom of heaven. This is a radical way of life where you put Christ at the center of everything you say and everything you do. It's probably not as difficult for us to wrap our minds around it as it was for those first century Jews. We, we are fortunate we've got the completed scriptures and we have the Holy Spirit that helps us understand this. And sometimes when we read this, it's really familiar to us. But we need to remember how shocking this would have been to those first century believers. To hear them say, you guys got it all wrong. I know what you think, God said. I know what you're expecting, but let me show you what it really, really looks like. And then he begins to teach. And he begins, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This morning we did Psalm 1, and that is a beatitude as well, this word blessed. Some translations say happy. But the idea of happiness is, is probably not the best way to explain this. Uh, some scholars that think that the best way to explain this idea of being happy or blessed, it's an inward thing. It's not a feeling that you get. I'm happy if, and I may get myself in trouble here, if the, if the Tar Heels win, I'm happy. If the Dallas Cowboys win, I'm happy. <laughs> You always take a risk, but let's just throw it on out there and get it out there, and we, we won't address that anymore. But that's a conditional thing. That really doesn't affect my joy. That is, doesn't affect anything eternal, does it? So it's more than just being happy. The idea is that you have found favor with God. God is smiling upon you, and you are in a special position. So that's really what the word blessed means. And Jesus says, you are blessed. You are fortunate. And I really like that. I have yet to see a translation translated that way, but a lot of the commentaries say the idea is when we understand our position with God, we are fortunate. We are favored. And I really like that. But it says, you are favored. You're blessed. 
You can have this inward peace and joy when you're poor in spirit. It's interesting, before we tackle this one, there are eight Beatitudes, but as you go through them, you understand that there are really seven characteristics. Poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are humble or meek, some translations say, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, and those who are peacemakers or those who work for peace. Those are the seven characteristics. And then that eighth one, those who are persecuted for righteousness. Those are the seven characteristics of righteousness that if we live up to, and this is something I have to wrap my head around it, if we're really living the way Jesus wants us to live, we are going to face persecution. Now, it might not be physical persecution like brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. But we kind of talked about it this morning. If you're really living the way Jesus wants you to live, and this, this includes me as well, if you're really living out these Beatitudes, and people are going to look at you and they're going to think all sorts of things. They're going to think, you're crazy. How can you have joy in the midst of all this stuff that's going on? How can you sacrifice your own personal desires and wants and rights for someone else? It just makes no sense. If you're truly living a righteous life, if you choose the path of the righteous that we talked about this morning, it's going to cause you trouble. And people are going to persecute you. Maybe not physically, but they're going to insult you. They're going to say things about you. And Jesus warned His disciples from the very beginning, don't be surprised if they hate you because they hated me first. But this is a transition. This is a, uh, it's a step. Uh, if you're going up on the roof of a house and you put the ladder down, where do you want the first step at? Do you want it halfway through the ladder or up at the very top? Where do you want the first step on a ladder? At the very bottom. This is a path. That's one reason why I decided to preach Psalm 1 this morning because I kind of knew I wanted to go here tonight. This is making the choice to follow the path of the righteous. And this is the first step. This is the first rung on the ladder. This is the first mile post marker on the race you are running. It's to be, pure, to be poor in spirit. So the question is, and I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but what does it mean to be poor in spirit? All throughout the Old Testament, through different psalms and through some of the prophets, you see God's people described as being oppressed, afflicted, sometimes they use the word miserable, or needy. James 2 verse 5 says, those who are poor in this world are rich in faith. So this is a concept all throughout Scripture. Paul writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6.10 says, even though we have nothing, we possess Everything. So we're not talking about physical possessions here. Because there are poor people who are righteous. There are rich people who are righteous. So it's not anything to do with our material possessions. But it's an attitude. It's the way we look at our relationship with God. So those who are poor in spirit are those who look at a holy, righteous God and realize, and this may sound strange to us. It was strange when I first heard it taught this way, but... We have absolutely nothing to offer Him. There's absolutely nothing God needs from us. Have you ever thought about it that way? He's God. He's Creator. He spoke everything into being. What in the world can I give Him that He can't provide for Himself? And that's the idea. To be a part of this kingdom is to recognize it on our own. And you have to be real careful when you use... You have to watch your terms... 
I'm not a Calvinist. I don't believe that we are totally depraved and just God created us for nothing. But I do believe that on our own, without the Holy Spirit intervening and convicting us of sin, without what Jesus did on the cross, I have nothing that can impress God. I have nothing to make God want me any more than He already wants me. I'm, I guess a good way to describe it is, is to be spiritually bankrupt. To have absolutely no spiritual assets, nothing that I can take to God to impress Him. I can't buy salvation. I can't do enough good works to impress God where He goes, well, come on in, Lee. Good job. It's nothing that I have done. It's because He looked at me and He understands me and He loved me so much that Jesus went to the cross and died for me. And the first step to becoming a citizen of this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the first step to experiencing this blessing, and it is interesting, I don't know if you noticed, but that's in the present tense. So it was in the present tense 2,000 years ago when Jesus was telling these people, you can be blessed right here and right now. This is not something we have to wait for. This is not something that we have to wait for Jesus to come back to experience this blessing. It's right here. It's right now. We become part of the citizen and part of the kingdom immediately. And I believe Scripture says this when we confess our sins, when we proclaim Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when we're baptized and our sins are forgiven and the Spirit comes in. That's when I believe it happens. But immediately right then we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now it's true that part of that is not going to be fulfilled until Christ returns. But I used to think about it, well, one day Jesus is going to come back and I'll get to go to heaven. And it's something I just have to wait for. I never understood that right here, right now, we have the power. Right now, we have the rights. Now, we have to face trials and temptations. James says that. And like I said, there's part of it that won't be fulfilled until Christ returns and we're given new bodies and the new heavens and the new earth comes. But right here and right now, every single one of us that have made Jesus our Lord and Savior, that have been baptized into His name, we are citizens. But the first step is, is you have to understand that you are a sinner and that you need saving. That may sound simple to most of us in here, but there are a lot of people who don't think that they need saving. They think, I'm okay. Why do I need God for it? I'm, the things I do and say, they're fine. I don't need anything. They are obviously not poor in spirit. Jesus wants the people to understand, and it's interesting because the majority of them would have been physically poor as well. It doesn't specifically say it, but there was also another group of people that tended to follow Jesus and listen to the things He said, and it was the religious leaders and the Pharisees of the day that Jesus would tangle with almost the entire three years of His ministry here on earth. And those were the people that thought they had it all figured out. If I just keep the right amount of laws, if I check off the right things on this side and don't check off anything here, I'm okay. They thought they could somehow do enough to earn God's favor, and they totally missed it. This would have been scandalous to them to hear Jesus say, you have to come before God and say, I have nothing, I am nothing, I can't do anything. And that may still sound shocking to a lot of us today. But before you climb up the ladder, you've got to get on the first rung, and it's as close to the ground as possible. You don't want to hop up a ladder and the first rung is halfway up the ladder or at the very top. How difficult would it be for Jesus to say the very first step to become part of the kingdom is to be peacemakers without going through this process? 
The process in Psalm 1 is a negative one. Walk, stand, sit. I'm not a runner. You can look at me and tell I don't run marathons, but I like to hike trails. Uh, back up in Pennsylvania, there were some really neat trails, and they have mile markers to let you know how far you have gone, where you are on the map. And maybe you can look at this as a mile marker. This is the first step on that trail that we are walking. Paul talks about running the race, keeping our eyes on the prize, and we need to do that. But every race begins somewhere. There's a starting line, and here is our starting line. You are blessed. You are fortunate when you come before holy, almighty God and recognize that there's nothing you can do to save yourself. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most of us here tonight probably understand that. But that's a message that we need to be telling the world, and the world does not want to hear this. The world wants to hear that everything is fine. I don't need God. I don't need religion. I don't need church. I don't need Jesus. I can live the way I want to, and as long as I do what's good in my mind, I'm fine. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. And Jesus says, that's not the way to start this. That's not going to get you anywhere. You have to understand. God is holy. God needs nothing from me. There's nothing I can do to impress Him. I have to rely on God every step of the way. I've been studying in James in my private uh, devotion time every day. And it's interesting because a lot of people will take what Paul says. Paul says we're saved by grace through faith and there's nothing that we can do. Paul understands what it means to be poor in spirit. And Paul was a Pharisee. He came out of a mindset that we can do enough and we can make God happy. We can be righteous by living a certain way. So for Paul to say none of that matters, there's nothing that we can do, Paul understands what it means to be poor in spirit. And a lot of people see James say, well, faith without works is dead. And they think somehow or another James and Paul are disagreeing. But I think they're saying the same thing using different terms. And as we go through these Beatitudes over the next several Sunday nights, we're going to see exactly what James says, where he says, faith without works is dead. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. As Paul saying, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, and there's nothing we can do about it. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And before we can go any further, before we can take another step, before we can truly call ourselves a Christian before we can ever hope for eternal life in the presence of Almighty God, we have to take this first step. We have to hear what Paul says in Romans when he says, the wages of sin is what? Death. And in case you think that that doesn't count you, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we have to begin there. Like I said, I'm assuming the majority of us know that and understand that, but Sometimes it's good for those of us that have been Christians and have been on this journey for a long time to stop and remember the basics. Just to remind ourselves what we're trying to accomplish here in this life, why we come to church, why we do these things. And another reason it's good to go back and look at these basics and understand that is because we're supposed to be going out into the world and doing what, according to the Great Commission? Teaching. Making disciples. How in the world can we make disciples if we don't start in the right place? 
We need to understand God is almighty. We need to understand there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. It took me a long time to understand that. I grew up in the Church of Christ. I mean, I didn't grow up in a Calvinist church thinking anything like that. But I just felt like I had always been told I had to be a good little boy. I had a checklist. I had one side that had all the things I was supposed to do. Go to church. Go to church on Sunday night. Go to church on Wednesday. Read my Bible. Pray. Go to camp. Do all this stuff. And as long as I was checking off things on the good side, I was doing pretty good. But then there was another side where all the stuff that I wasn't supposed to do, and I was checking way too many of those, and then I would look at my little card and go, oh, man, I don't have enough good stuff on this side, or I've got too many. And even though I knew that's not the way it worked, I was counting on myself to somehow impress God, to somehow show God that I was a good little boy and He should let me into heaven. When the truth is, is I should fall down on my hands and knees in front of Him and say, Lord, I know there's nothing I can do. It's only because of Jesus. It's only because You loved me first. The beautiful thing about this, because as we go through these, you're going to notice they get a lot harder as you go along. But the first step is right there. Anybody, and I truly believe this, anybody, if they're confronted with the gospel, and they listen and they truly hear what the gospel says, anybody can start there. The rung is close enough to the ground that anybody can step up there and begin this journey. John 3.16 says what? For God so loved everybody. Everybody. God loved everybody. Jesus died for everybody. What kind of Messiah would Jesus be if He was teaching them things that didn't apply to everybody? He's looking at the entire cross-section of the culture He lived in. The super-religious Pharisees, blue-collar guys, educated people, His own twelve. And if you look at those guys, that was a ragtag bunch of guys if ever there was. And anybody, anybody can look at what Jesus did for them on the cross and say, I can't do anything without that. And that's where we have to begin. That's what we need to teach people. We have to fully rely on God. I truly believe this. I don't think we can move along this path without starting here. You can't just jump in the middle of it. I used to like to try to put together model kits, the little plastic cars and stuff, and I'm impatient. They give you a sheet. And if you're smart enough, you start with the one that says number one and you start there. But I always wanted to build something else. I didn't want to have to put together the engine and all these little things that weren't cool looking. I didn't want to have to stop and glue the seats together. I wanted to build the car. And I would just open up in the middle and start grabbing stuff. And it didn't take real long before I realized I had no clue what I was doing. And this was never going to look like a car or an airplane or whatever it was. You read through these things and you think, well, I want to inherit the earth and I want to be filled. But if you don't start with the poor in spirit, you'll find yourself trying to do these things on your own. And speaking from personal experience, you'll fail every time. You may do a good job every now and then, but if you try, if you try to earn your salvation, if you try to go any further than blessed or the poor in spirit, you're ultimately going to fail because without Jesus, it is absolutely impossible. 
And that's a message the world doesn't want to hear. They want to hear, I'm okay by myself. It's interesting, it ends with blessed are those who are persecuted because, folks, if we go out into the world and tell the world what this book says, hey, guys, you can't do it on your own. You're a sinner. Without Jesus Christ, you're lost. It's not a popular message. It's not a message they want to hear. But heaven help us if we try to preach anything other than that without starting here. Heaven help us if we try to live our lives without starting with blessed are the poor in spirit. And the beautiful thing is it doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit for one day the kingdom will be theirs. One day you'll be a citizen of the kingdom once you start right there. And you're obedient to Scripture, and I believe Peter made that real clear in Acts 2.38, what it means to be poor in spirit and to respond. You are now a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Your sins are wiped away. They're forgotten. Scripture says they're tossed into the seed, never to be brought back up again. And God gives you His Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is something that I used to... I guess I just didn't understand it. It was kind of scary because I grew up in the 70s when we had the King James Bible and it says the Holy Ghost. And I remember watching Scooby-Doo thinking, the Holy Ghost, what is that? Is, is God walking around with... I never understood what the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit did for us. And we could do all kinds of Bible studies just on what the Holy Spirit does. The first thing the Holy Spirit does is it convicts us and helps us to understand that we are poor in spirit. And once the Holy Spirit dwells in us, it convicts us of our sins. It helps us understand Scripture. It illuminates Scripture for us. And it empowers us to overcome our enemy. If you don't start with blessed are the poor in spirit, and this is how we'll close tonight, if you don't start there, if you don't hear the gospel and you don't understand that you are a sinner saved by grace, you don't confess that you are a sinner, you don't confess that Jesus is the Lord, and you're not immersed into Him, then there's no way you can make it. You may think you can, but there's no way. I mentioned this morning... I don't know the hearts of anybody. All I can do is look and see a bunch of people who are committed enough to come to church on a Sunday night. That makes me assume that most of us here are committed, but I don't know. There may be someone here tonight as we close that needs to take that first step. Maybe you've been trying to do it on your own all these years, and you get frustrated. If you were like me, you would get frustrated. I would take two steps forward and three backwards, and I just couldn't figure it out because I was trying to save myself. This morning, if you or this evening... This evening, if you need to take the first step on that wrong and go, God, I've been trying to do this all by myself and I can't do it. I can't do it without you. I'm broken. I'm lost without you and I need you. I'll invite you this evening to come forward as we sing our closing song.